Chapter Two of Dead Love Has Chains by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two. The Electra was nearing Brindisi, and a great many passengers were prepared to leave her. Cabin trunks, handbags, books, umbrella cases, and frivolities of all kinds were packed and ready for unshipping. Maids and valets were busy and on the alert for the work of landing. Lady Mary was going home in a leisurely way, meaning to break the journey and loiter at any place she cared for, at Venice, at Verona, on the Italian lakes, with perhaps a week in Paris, to order gowns and hats, and look about her in a general way. She had friends among the haute noblesse in solemn houses, in grey dull streets in the old Saint-Germain-Faubourg, set back from the traffic of the stony street, beyond the echoes of stony courtyards made more melancholy by funereal evergreens in great green tubs, houses with double flights of marble stairs and a glass canopy over the door. Lady Mary was a welcome visitor in many such houses, and had the history of their owners engraved upon her capacious brain with all the relationships to the furthest cousin set down in a funeral letter. She had known the Orleans princes and their belongings, at Twickenham and Ham and Bushy Park and Stowe, and she loved to talk of them. A week in Paris was a treat that she always gave herself after a winter in distant places. Jane Brown was to stay with the ship to the bitter end. I wish you were coming with my cousin and me, said Lady Mary, who had grown fond of the girl, or as fond as Jane Brown would allow her to be. Jane had come to her cabin every afternoon, staying a shorter or longer time as the spirit moved her. Conversation often flagged, for the girl's reticence made it difficult, and Jane would sit in silence with a joyless face, watching Lady Mary's needle, almost as if it were a penitential task to watch, a kind of intellectual crank exercising her mind upon useless labor. She was always the same, and in those many days of friendly intercourse Mary Harling felt that she had got no nearer to the suffering soul behind that melancholy outward form. She knew that the soul was steeped in sadness, but she knew nothing of the cause. Her guesses were painful, for such persistent gloom in so young a creature must needs have a bitter root. The girl had obstinately refused to be introduced to Daisy Meredith. She is a good deal older than you, but she would be more in sympathy with you than I can be, Lady Mary urged. She is still a girl, very young for her age, and so bright and cheerful. She would do you good. Please don't ask me. I like to sit here with you for a little while every day. Your kindness has that array of light into my life. You, you are such a lady. You are so strong. But I could not talk to a girl. My life will never be like a girl's life again. We should not have a thought in common. Mary Harling brooded over that strange sentence. My life will never be like a girl's life again. From a girl who did not look nineteen, such a speech argued utter ruin. Never again. It argued the irrevocable, the mischance that had changed the cup of girlhood from sweet to bitter. A broken vow, a trust betrayed, a young life spoiled. It was between ten and eleven o'clock on the night before they came to Brindisi. Lady Mary had dismissed cousin and maid and was sitting in her dressing-room, reading one of those devotional books with which, or with a chapter or two of holy writ, she was wont to soothe her spirits before she tried to sleep. Tonight she had chosen a sermon of Frederick Robertson's, whose discourses never wearied her, though she knew them almost as well as the Psalms. He was her preacher of preachers, the wisest, the most delicate in apprehension the most generous in love and pity for his brother man. There came a light knocking at the cabin door. 
She knew the hand, for it always seemed as if she could hear it flutter as it knocked, shrinkingly, timidly. She went quickly to open the door. "'Come in, come in, my dear girl. I had bolted myself in for the night, but I am very glad to see you. Our last night together. Sit down and let us have our last talk. The captain says we can land directly after breakfast. I shall be at Danielli's tomorrow night. I wish you were coming with us. How happy you look!' said the girl, contemplating her with a kind of fearful wonder. How serene and how strong! I mean, how strong in courage and resolution! And yet I have had to bear sorrow that might break any woman's heart. I used to think my heart was broken. Was it something very dreadful? The death of someone you loved? No, thank God, it was not death. But it was only less dreadful than death. But I don't want to talk of that. You have never told me your trouble, and I won't tell you mine. Only I want you to know that though I seem a frivolous, over-prosperous woman, I have gone through the valley of the shadow, and the shadow has been round and about me for six years of my life. Ah, but you can hope. You may come back into the sunshine some day. After this there was a silence. The girl sat huddled in a corner of the sofa, her clasped hands resting on her knees. Lady Mary noted the straining of the small hands, the thin pale fingers interwoven. "'You can keep yourself alive with hope,' she said after a long pause. And then she burst into tears, suddenly, her forehead bowed upon the clenched hands, her form shaken by convulsive sobbing. There came a sharp knock at the cabin door, and the maid's harsh voice. "'You had better come to bed, miss. It is past eleven, and you oughtn't to be out of your own cabin.' Lady Mary opened the door and faced the intruder. "'Your young lady is going to stay with me a little longer. I will see that she goes back to her cabin in good time.' The tone of authority subdued the sour-faced person. "'It is very late for Miss Brown to be out of her cabin,' she said sullenly, and sullenly withdrew. Mary Harding seated herself by the sobbing girl and tried to raise her drooping head. "'Let me comfort you if I can,' she said. "'Won't you tell me your trouble? "'I might advise. "'I might help you even. "'I could at least do more than that disagreeable maid of yours. "'Don't be afraid to confide in me, "'even if it is something very sad, "'something that makes you ashamed.' "'The last few words were whispered "'as Lady Mary drew the girl's head to her bosom "'and gently smoothed the disordered hair with a motherly hand, "'the hand that had caressed her boy's handsome head "'when he came to her flushed with the day's sport "'on the cricket ground or in the hunting field, "'a hand that had not forgotten the maternal touch. "'I want to tell you, I must tell you, "'now that you are leaving the ship, "'now that we shall never meet again. "'Will you promise never to repeat what I tell you, "'never to speak of me to any living creature?' "'Yes, I promise. "'Nothing you tell me tonight shall ever be repeated by me "'without your distinct permission.' Then I will trust you. I came here because I felt that I must tell you. My heart was bursting. But you will despise me, you will loathe me when you know. She struck her hand fiercely on the loose muslin that was folded over her breast. The scarlet letter, she cried. The scarlet letter ought to be there. The story was told in that speech. My poor, poor, unhappy girl. Lady Mary took her in her motherly arms and wept over her, with more emotion than she had felt for anyone not of her own kin. She had suspected some evil thing from the beginning, for the girl's trouble expressed itself in a way that could mean no common trouble. 
the solitary voyage, the stern-faced attendant, every detail hinted at a ruined life, a young life destroyed in its bloom, a bud blighted and cankered before it could become a rose. And the desolate creature was so lovely, gifted with beauty that in happy surroundings, in the sunlight of good luck, might have made her one of society's queens. Whatever her fault had been, however deep her fall, Mary Harding's heart bled for her, as she felt the young bosom heaving with convulsive sobs, and the strained grip of the slender hands that clung to her arm. "'We shall never meet again,' the girl said, "'and I want you to know what an unhappy wretch I am.' She went on, breathlessly, in short sentences, punctuated by sobs. "'I only left school in England a year and a half ago. I went to my father and mother in India. I had not seen my father since I was a child.' I hardly remembered him, except that he didn't care much for me, and that he was often angry about trifles. But my mother and I had been parted only two years, and I adored her. I was her only child. There had been another, a son, but he died before he was a year old. We adored each other. There never was such a mother. I flew into her arms when she came to meet me, and I saw death in her face. That was my first sorrow." She only lived four months after I landed, lived and suffered. When she died I was alone in the world, for I knew my father did not care for me. He had another person to think about, someone he had no right to care for. Before the hot weather began he sent me to Kashmir with one of his nieces, a colonel's wife, who was gay and bright and kind and easy-going, as everybody was in Kashmir. My father went with his friends to Simla. There was a pause. The girl struggled with her sobs, and Lady Mary waited patiently. "'If you promise never, never, never to repeat what I tell you, I can't trust you, can't I? I have never broken a promise.' After my mother died, I used to lie awake half the night longing for her, and thinking that there was no one in the world who loved me. And for the rest of the night I used to dream that she was still alive and that we were happy. When I woke from that dream— it was almost the same every night. I used to wish that I was dead. But afterwards in Kashmir I knew that there was another kind of love, a love that dazzled me, a love that wrapped me round like fire. I was happy, happy, happier than words can tell. She clung to Lady Mary, she buried her face upon the matron's ample shoulder, and for the first time that good Christian felt a touch of repulsion. I don't know why I loved him but his influence changed my life, almost from the day we first met. He was handsome, fearless of man or beast, strong-willed, impetuous. He gave me no peace till he had made me love him. He took possession of my soul and made himself my master, and it seemed sweet to obey him, to know that he was always thinking about me and watching and following me. We were always together. My cousin encouraged him. People said he was rich. He was a great match, she told me, and I was a very lucky girl to have caught him. Vulgar, wasn't it? Hideously vulgar, said Lady Mary. Well, we were often together and alone. My cousin had her own pleasures and was always busy, so she let me do what I liked. We went for long forest rides. We climbed lonely hills. One evening, at sunset, when we had lost our way, he repeated some verses of Byron's, a scene on a Greek island. Haiti and Juan, and after that he used to call me Haiti whenever we were alone. Then one day my cousin made a fuss and told him people were beginning to say ill-natured things about us, 
and he must either declare himself or must go away and never see me again. He said he must go, if she thought fit, for he was not free to marry. He had thought of me only as a romantic child and had never imagined that any scandal could come of his liking for me. A year ago, when he was in America, he had engaged himself to a Boston girl, an heiress. Her money was of no consequence to him, for he was an only son and would be well off by and by, but he was bound to the young lady in Boston. My cousin told me this, and I listened to her without a word. And she never knew that I was a lost creature, scorched, seared, consumed by the fire of that dreadful love. Think what it was, to have loved as Haiti loved, never to have doubted that I was to be his wife, that I was to belong to him forever, and then to hear that we must part. He was an insufferable villain, said Lady Mary with clenched teeth. Oh, I suppose other men are as cruel when girls are fools. Oh, the shame of it, the shame, with a sudden rush of scalding tears, the agony of knowing that I was an outcast for the rest of my life. Did you never see him again? Once. He made his way to me at night. He cried over me. He threw himself upon the ground and cursed himself and beat his head upon the floor. He told me that he would have made any sacrifice to have me for his wife if he had not been bound in honor to another girl, a girl who would die if he jilted her. I think he was sorry, but he said I was so young and I would forget him and make a good match and perhaps be a great lady. He did not know. What you know? whispered the girl with her face hidden. No, he never knew that. He left Kashmir after that night. And you have never written to him? Never. But others had to know. Wareham told my father. He never spoke like a father to me after that. He arranged for me to go to his sister in Ireland. I am to stay with her till he comes to fetch me. It may be two years, three years, five, six, seven years. Poor child, poor child. Lady Mary found herself wanting in words of consolation. To a woman of mature years, with whom chastity was a habit of the mind, such a fall as this, the fall of a well-born, well-bred girl, was inconceivable. She could better understand the outcast of the streets, the village beauty, betrayed and abandoned, flung into a gulf as black as hell. She was not without pity, but she was without understanding. She wanted to speak words of healing and comfort, but the words would not come. She could only think of the disgracefulness, the shamefulness of the story. A girl, educated at a respectable English school, a girl whose heart was still bleeding from the loss of a good mother, a girl in the freshness of youth to whom the faintest touch of impurity should be horrible for such a one to fling herself into the arms of her first lover, consumed by the fire of lawless love. It was unthinkable. How old are you? she asked almost sternly. I shall be eighteen in April. Your cousin was as wicked as your seducer, to take no more care of a girl of seventeen. The girl started to her feet, releasing herself from Lady Mary's surrounding arms. You are disgusted with me, she said shortly. I was a fool to tell you. And some day, if chance should bring us together again, you will point me out to your friends as a disreputable creature, unfit to mix with decent people. I have given you my promise. Lady Mary was of that modern Anglican church which loves the things that belong to the old faith. An ivory crucifix hung over her birth. The girl had often looked at it with dreary eyes, finding no comfort in the thought of a Redeemer. She looked at it now with a sudden purpose, 
snatched it from the hook where it hung, and put it into Lady Mary's hands. Swear, she said, upon this cross, that you will never give me away. The slang phrase was repellent at such a moment, and Lady Mary answered stiffly, I have promised, she said, that is enough. No, 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 it is not enough. I hate myself for having babbled to you. I shouldn't have done it if I were not distracted. I must have your oath. I know you are a religious woman, and if you swear upon that crucifix, you will not break your word. Mary Harling lifted the sacred symbol to her lips. I swear never to repeat what you have told me, she said in a low, grave voice, and then putting her arm round the girl, and making her sit down beside her, she said gently, You have been very hardly used, yet you have, I fear, yourself to blame in some part, for the trouble that has come upon your young life but your Saviour will accept your atonement of shame and sorrow. He has pardoned you, as he pardoned the nameless woman who had sinned, and saved her from the Pharisees' fierce law. You are very young, and after some quiet years in Ireland, years in which you must cultivate your mind and try to do all the good that you possibly can to the people about you, the poor people and children that you may find there, in whom you can help and teach after those years which you can make years of atonement, you may begin a new life, you may feel yourself a new woman, cleansed and purified by sorrow and good works. And then Lady Mary repeated a sentence in the sermon she had been reading when Jane Brown came to her door, which had come back to her mind while she sat dumb and unsympathetic. Forget mistakes. Organize victory out of mistakes. That is what the noblest preacher I know of told sinners. But in that happier time which you must hope for, if a good man should give you his love and ask you to be his wife, don't cheat him. Tell him all your sorrowful past. Don't shirk the shame of it. If he really loves you, he will forgive and take you to his heart. Don't palter with the truth. Beat your burden and be sure that truth is best. I shall never marry. I would rather go down to my grave alone than bear the shame of such a confession. I have told you. I could not tell a man least of all a man I loved. I shall never marry. Unless, unless, unless I were to meet him, free to make me his wife. She was weeping quietly, subdued, and perhaps a shade more hopeful. Presently she flung her arms round Mary Harling's neck. Will you let me kiss you? she pleaded. Now that you know what I am. Lady Mary kissed her warmly. Goodbye, my dear. Some day, perhaps, when your life is happier, you will write and tell me. I shall be very glad to know that all is well with you. No, no, don't waste a thought upon the wretched girl whose crying broke your night's rest. You have been very kind to me, and I am not ungrateful. Or sometimes, perhaps, when you open Hawthorne's story, think of me for a moment. I shall often think of you, and I want to hear from you years hence when you have lived down your sorrow. But, oh, my poor girl, Lady Mary went on in a lower voice, if a living child is born to you, don't withhold your love. Don't try to put the innocent creature from you. Try as much as your surroundings will suffer you to be a good mother. The girl answered only with a hand clasp. Goodbye, she sobbed, and in the next instant the cabin door was closed, and she had vanished out of Mary Harding's life. Or so Mary Harding thought. End of chapter 2